Welcome to another episode of the 90 Minute School Day, the podcast where we dive deep into homeschooling strategies and insights to creating an enriching and meaningful learning environment for our children. I'm your host, Kelly Edwards, and today's episode dives deep into the heart of homeschooling success. We're going to cover empowering our learners, crafting enriching learning environments. School is out. Natural learning is in. Hey there, I am Kelly Edwards, your host of this podcast and creator of the 90-Minute School Day. This is not your typical homeschooling podcast. Here, you will find out-of-the-box stories from the trenches, trainings, tools, and tips to guide you forward. Yes, I like alliteration. We will also share results and mindset shifts to support you in your journey of living and learning alongside your out-of-the-box neurodiverse kids. I'm so glad you're here. As homeschooling parents, we know that the learning environment plays a crucial role in our children's education journey. When we hear the phrase learning environment, the typical idea is to consider the physical environment. Today, we will expand and explore three key environments that contribute to an optimal learning landscape. These are relationship, space, and time. But before we jump into all of that, let's take a moment and remember our vision for homeschooling. Our vision that moves away from traditional classroom-centered and curriculum-focused models filled with their busy work and battles. And instead, we want to embrace the power of interests, supporting strengths, remaining mindful of meaning, and real-life applications. So let's get going. I think a great start to today's podcast is to introduce you to a fellow homeschooler and podcaster, Missy Willis, as she shares with us her story of why her family homeschools and the importance of resilience as a value in her home. Hello, my name is Missy, and you can find me on social media at Let Him Go Barefoot. So I want to talk about the word resilience and what that has meant for us on our unschooling journey. First, when I hear the word resilience, I think about things like emotional intelligence, critical thinking, problem solving, and resourcefulness. I'm also reminded of one very important reason that we decided to skip the typical schooling model over 14 years ago, which is so we could prioritize psychological health and overall well-being instead of centering school life that tends to focus so heavily on grades and test scores. Since life is filled with stressors, challenges, and even tragedy, whether we choose to homeschool or not, Building skills and learning strategies to foster a resilient mind is is as important to me as helping my children learn to read and write. Unschooling has allowed us the time and space to do this with intention and consistency. Today's training. We are going to talk about the importance of relationship, space, and time as environments in our homeschooling journey. So visualize with me right now a house. That house is on a foundation. It has a first floor and a second floor. The foundation of our homeschool house needs to be rooted in relationship. 
The first floor is space and the second floor, that's time. So while we visualize our relationship as the foundation of a house, we are going to understand the importance of the structural integrity of the entire building and the overall safety of the house and its occupants when we consider relationship. As parents, we are our children's first and most important interpersonal relationship when we begin with that tiny little baby that is dependent on us for everything. Building a strong, supportive, and nurturing relationship with our kids is fundamental to fostering a positive learning environment. When children feel connected and valued, they are more likely to be engaged in their studies. As homeschooling parents, we can prioritize relationship in three ways. The first one is actively involving our children in the decision-making around their own learning. We can discuss their interests and goals and encourage open communication. What does this look like in application? I'll give you an example from my own home. We meet with our children three times a year, and this is how we break up our school year. We school all year round, but we find that we have natural breaks in our family's rhythm in August, January, and May. So I have personal retreats at those three times, first and foremost with myself as a reflective process. We talked about this in our last episode, that that's a key component of how humans learn is reflection. So I will go and have a personal retreat. And then we will sit down, my, I'll, I'll get with my husband, and then we sit down with our kids and we involve them in their decision-making. So I've got some things linked down below. If you're interested in how we kind of use our learning year, we have a little uh, sheet that our kids fill out and we revisit those. So um, we either edit them at that time or we start new ones. And then we also review our year. So that usually happens in May where we will look back over the prior learning seasons and we will again track that progress that I talked about in our last episode as well as a key way to combat the comparison trap. It's really important to meet regularly with your children. If meeting seasonally works for your family, that's great. Uh, We also meet with our two older children regularly inside of those three kind of planning seasons, if you will. And it looks more for us like bi-weekly. Sometimes it is weekly. Sometimes it's tri-weekly. Is that even a term? But we meet with our children regularly. This is to kind of catch up on what they're doing, what they're interested in, what's changing, what goals they have, what's happening practically in our family with different events coming up. You get the idea. The number one thing we can do to prioritize relationship in our home is to actively involve our children in decision-making around their own learning. We learn so much through this process. The second thing we want to do is we want to respect them as whole persons, which means we listen to their words, active, genuine eye contact listening, and their behavior as communication. We get so much information daily when we really take a few moments to focus on our children when they are speaking to us. This develops trust. This develops relationship. This tells them they can come to us with everything. And sometimes you have that verbal child. And then if you're like me, you have that child that is not very verbal. And so 
we need to especially tune into their behavior and their body language. That gives us so much information. This goes back to observe, observe, observe. Observation is so critical in relationships. So respect them as whole persons, respect what they have to say, respect them even though it's not interesting to you, make good eye contact, listen to them, repeat back to them and give them some uh, affirming I statements. I see how excited you are about the, this Lego creation you're showing me. I'm so impressed with your creativity, that kind of thing. All right. The number third, the number third, the number, the, the third thing we can do here is, uh, and to improve our relationships and prioritize that as the foundation of our homeschool is to help co-regulate them when they are having a hard time. So again, we've um, had our regular meetings. We've been tracking their interests. We are listening and respecting them as whole persons. And in doing that, part of that respect is to help them co-regulate. So they are sharing with us um, something interesting that they are making in their Lego creation, or they're melting down because something happened and broke and something un expected a sibling got in there. We, we know how it goes. So what we want to do here is we want to help them co-regulate. Teaching our children regulation skills is one of the most important things we can do as parents and home educators. So that co-regulation is critical. When they are having a hard time, we stop everything and we work to help them come out of that space to feel regulated in their own body because learning cannot happen if we are dysregulated. It just doesn't. So those are my three things for helping to prioritize relationship in your homeschool. Actively involve your children in decision-making, respect them as whole persons, listening to them actively, and then helping them co-regulate when they are having a hard time. Do you like learning with me on the podcast? Consider joining the waitlist for guide training. This cohort coaching series meets twice a year in the fall and spring. We gather here together, learning in community to be a guide, not a teacher. Guides don't do it for you. They help you do it for yourself. Guides go with you. Guides lead when it gets tricky and confidence is lost. They hold your hand when you need it. They walk beside you in relationship. Guides follow and cheer you on as you lead the way. Get the guidance you need to guide your homeschool. Learn more about guide training and join the waitlist by clicking the link in the show notes. Next, let's talk about the physical learning environment, space. Unlike a traditional classroom, homeschooling allows us to create tailored spaces that caters to our children's specific needs and interests. Designing a space that fosters creativity, comfort, and organization can significantly impact our kids' learning experience. Now, before you think you have to go do anything, just know you already have it. It's a place, and it's called home. Home happens on that first level of a house. You know, it's where all the action is that family life entails. It has the kitchen, it has the eating area, it has the living room, and the access to the outdoors. So when we are thinking about our learning environments as relationship, time, and space, space is on that first floor. And these spaces facilitate relationship and group learning and mastery. All of these spaces have all the things that we need to do, movement, food, togetherness, all of it. Please make use of all the spaces in your home, inside and out. 
It helps me to think of these spaces in four categories when we're thinking about physical space as a learning environment. So there are four categories I think of. The first one is quiet and focus. So these can be spaces and they can also be like states of mind. So having a quiet area and a focus area where when we are in those areas, there's quiet work happening or focused work. And this can be something that you can just simply time zone out. In my family, we have quiet time hours. So that's in the morning, the evening, and the middle of the day. It's just quiet time. And my kids know that like busy, loud things aren't going to be happening inside the home. So if they need to be busy and loud, we can organize something to be outside the home at that time. The second of the four areas is a messy area. So in my home, it's the kitchen. Like anything messy you want to do is in the kitchen or outside usually. And if you want to do something messy, like say in a bedroom, you want to get the smelly markers out. I just have a conversation. The kids come to me because it's outside the messy areas of our home. And they would say, I would like to color in my room. And I remind them, where do the markers go? Are we going to be coloring on the rug? Are we coloring on the hardwood? What are we doing? So that is how we frame out messy. You want to have a movement area of your home. And so this is different for everyone. So just think about your home and where are you comfortable with your kids making big moves? So if they're wrestling, if they're needing to like jump, if they need to swing or they need to tumble, where and how are you okay with that? So for me, my dining room is not for any kind of horseplay. It's just full of too many breakables. And so we have communicated that to our children. However, the living room is fair game. So they know that they can do all of their crazy somersaults and tumbling and they have exercise balls and they have spinny things and they can do all of those big moves if they are indoors in that space. The other big space that they do when they get a little bit too big for that space is they go outside. So I'm like, Hey, your body is jumping on the couch. And that is not something that we do in our home. So it looks like if you need to jump, maybe you should go jump outside. Uh, we got a trampoline out there. This is kind of the idea. So you have a quiet focus area of your home for us. That's bedrooms. Bedrooms are quiet. You don't really have these loud, boisterous activities in our bedrooms. We do have the fortune to have a playroom. So that's just something to think about. Then you have your messy areas and your messy areas. You get to decide where those are for us. It's the kitchen. If you want to do something messy outside of the kitchen, it's always a conversation. Movement areas kind of apply the same ways. It's for us in our home. It's our living space. Uh, it's open to like a foyer. And so that whole big space is open for all kinds of big moves, loud, boisterous movements. And then we have our out doors. And then the fourth area to help you kind of frame out learning spaces within your home is creative and imaginative. So making sure you have areas where there can be dress up, there can be imaginative play, also creative overlaps with messy. So that can kind of be a dual, fo dual fold area. But uh, again, some examples from my own life are our creative and imaginative spaces are their playrooms. And so there is a small playroom downstairs, and then there is a playroom in the guest room upstairs. And those have all kinds of toys and dress-up clothes and Legos and crafting supplies that aren't messy, colored pencils, things like that. And that is where they can get creative and imaginative. We also have a big tub of dress-up clothes on our front porch so that they can dress up and play with their friends when they are out of doors. And we have a lot of imaginative toys, outdoor toys, and things that we have stowed away outside. 
So as you think about these spaces, it just helps inform your children on what happens in these areas. So if you don't want to have loud, noisy things in a certain area of your home, then don't keep loud, noisy things in that area of your home. So as we look at homeschooling, we can kind of reorganize our spaces to help us identify for ourselves and for our children how we want these spaces to work and operate to honor everybody's sensory issues, to um, honor everyone's sense of needing quiet time and space. They know where they can go and when they need movement and loud, noisy impacts where that can be. So those are just four categories that help me figure out in my mind where this activity needs to happen. And when I notice somebody doing something that is outside of those areas, I just, it's a simple reminder. Hey, those messy markers, that needs to be a conversation. We need to do that at the kitchen table or just ask me so that we can make sure that you're not going to damage property, i.e. messy markers getting on the carpet. Just a reminder of the four spaces again. We have a quiet focus space. We have a messy space. We have movement spaces. And then we have creative and imaginative spaces. And in each of those spaces are the resources that we need to do those things. That's an important part of planning out our homeschooling spaces is to provide our children with tools and resources they need to explore their interests and passions in that zone, that area. This is going to enhance their sense of competence. This could mean in that messy space, having a cart nearby or in the next room. I have a lot of our art supplies stored in our dining room and they're adjacent to our kitchen. So our art supplies are messy. So they're right around the corner. The kids can go grab them when they want to and do messy art projects in the kitchen. Okay, so you want to have a well-stocked art corner, art station. You might also want to have the science things in an area where your children know when they want to get a science experiment going, where they go. And for us, again, our, our science lab is the kitchen. That's where all the mess happens. And so we have our science things also right adjacent to our kitchen. So the kids can go down there and get their supplies and then be mad scientists in our kitchen space. That's our messy space. Um, but another thing, like when you think about a quiet space, you want to have books and stuffies and blankets. So for us in our home, we have a smaller home. We have our bedrooms for those quiet spaces. So they have all kinds of wonderful books to read in their rooms and they have their stuffies and they have lights and they have music and all these sensory things that they can just have a really quiet, calm experience in their bedroom. But that might just be a cozy reading nook for you with books aligned with their interests. So you get the idea. Make sure that there are resources for each of these areas in your home and that are fully stocked for your child to be self-led and self-directed and they know where they are. They know how to put them back. Yes, we need to work with our kids to put things back. But that is really kind of a good framework that works really well to think of your home in those four areas and to make sure that they're stocked with tools and resources. It's time to discuss the final role of time. When we think about learning environments and we use this metaphor of a house, we're rooted in relationship. That is the foundation. The first floor is where life happens, family life happens. And so that's our spaces, our physical spaces. And we talked about that. And now we have our third learning space, which is time. This is an environment that is imperative to learning. Time is represented by the second floor of our mental house here which is typically full of bedrooms and bathrooms. 
this level is a little more individual and personal than the first level that is full of family life. The second floor is the life of the mind and the individual. There is space to develop it here. Homeschooling offers us flexibility to customize our days based on our children's natural rhythms and learning preferences, allowing ample time, that second floor, for exploration and learning at their own pace empowers our kids to take ownership of their educational journey. So we want to make sure that we have lots of time (laughs) for this. Okay, so how do we do this? We can do this by granting our children some control over their time and projects. This will cultivate a sense of autonomy by allowing them to take the lead and make decisions about their interests and how they spend their time. We empower them to become self-directed learners. So this kind of ties back to our first point in the relationship part of this podcast is we want to have these meetings. It develops relationship with our children and it also allows them the autonomy that they're looking for to be able to kind of chart their own course. They need lots of free time. So keeping formal and directed learning time short and meaningful is the best tip I have for you for time management. Then you can grant your child as much possible free time as you can stand. Let's talk about some tips on how to do this. The first thing, and I fall victim to this every year, especially in the fall, is to stifle the urge to be be in every extracurricular option out there. I know, I know, I know, I know. FOMO really hits me hard every fall. I leave little notes to myself in my calendar when I start seeing all the great offerings that are out there for my kids, and I want them to do all the good things, and so do you, right? But more is more. I love to say less is more because it's a constant reminder of myself not to overschedule my kids or me with all that driving around. So believe me, you will thank yourself in December or May. When all of these activities you've enrolled your little children into and driven them around to and managed the family schedule, and then they all have 14,000 performances in December and May. (laughs) That's my number one tip for allowing your children lots of free time so they can delve into their own interests and develop that autonomy and that motivation for self-directed learning is to stifle the extracurricular urges of signing them up for everything. I have four tips for you here. So that's the first one. The second one is to consider the season you're in for for homeschooling and scheduling. Considering this season allows you to understand that there is so much time in childhood to try new things. If you're in the middle of a career move, a death, a physical move, if you or your spouse have extra travel or a family has extra travel, perhaps there's a new baby or another household addition in your family, that could be a pet, that could be a grandparent, less is always more. These are big life changes. And um, we often say that the baby is the curriculum when there's a new baby entering the home. Well, I want to say that in all of these areas, if there is a career transition happening for a parent, if there is a, a death of a family member, if there is a physical move, if there's an illness, if there's extra travel, anything that is extra in this season, honor it and allow your family to learn together as you move through this transition. So consider that when you're scheduling extras, there's always time later to do more. The third thing is allow open-ended, undirected free time for your children. 
as much as possible. We've touched on this already, but this is truly one of the greatest gifts of childhood, being bored. We want to protect that free time for them to be bored and how to learn and process their way through it and to chase curiosity. Boredom is a great seedbed for this. And if we are always directing our children and they always have something on their schedule to do, then they don't get to experience boredom. And that is where some of their greatest interests can develop. Quick story for you on this. My daughter was outside several years ago and my oldest daughter, she was outside in the yard. She was just out there bored and she happened to notice a butterfly. And so she just was following this butterfly around in our yard. This was maybe five years ago. And she noticed this butterfly land and then she saw it lay eggs. She came inside. I saw this monarch butterfly lay eggs. And I was like, oh, I'm sure you did. Um, not a good example of active listening, but she was like, no, I really did. So I stopped. I went outside with her and sure enough, there were these little white things on these leaves. And uh, she and I were very like curious because we didn't have milkweed in our yard. And from a former, um, this is a longer story than I meant it to be, but from like a former unit study we had done, we knew that monarchs laid eggs on milkweed. So we brought the uh, leaves inside. We picked the leaves. We got out our microscope. We looked at these things to make sure they're eggs. We researched the shape, which is very interesting. Monarch eggs have like a crown shape to them. So yes, these were actual monarch eggs. So then the question was, well, what is this plant that the monarch has laid its eggs on? And sure enough, it is called honey vine. And this is a, spe a subspecies in the milkwood family, milkwood, milkweed family. All that to say, out of this boredom my daughter had, where she actually observed a monarch lay eggs on this random plant that is this invasive vine in our yard we're tr constantly trying to tear out, I now have permission to not weed so that we can provide these amazing pollinators a landing spot on their migration journey to not only eat, but lay their eggs. And it has been a true joy because every year my daughters now all go out around the season that we see monarchs, which is usually around August in our area, and they get to find these eggs. We bring them inside. We hatch these caterpillars uh, into butterflies. We tag them and release them, and they are the fourth stage that actually migrates to Mexico. All of this natural learning came out of boredom. So I really want to like hone in here on the importance of giving our children as much free time as we can possibly stand and know that we are giving them the greatest gift of just supporting their own interests. My fourth tip after all of that is to make time for rest. Okay. And this kind of goes nicely segued with boredom. We need to have daily rest. In our home, uh, we rest in the afternoons. We have a two-hour quiet time, usually after lunch, where all of us go to our respective corners. We have a little break from everybody, and we get to pursue our independent passion of the moment. Sometimes mine is sleeping. <laughs> Sometimes mine is reading. Sometimes it's just taking a shower, doing the dishes, and sitting outside with a hot beverage. So it looks something like that. Need to have daily rest time. We need to have weekly rest time, so having one day reserved for fun and just free time. Uh, we need to have monthly rest time, especially as women. We really need to understand where we are in our cycle and to not overschedule ourselves when we're cycling. That's a monthly rest. And then seasonally, we need to slow down and enjoy some time to ourselves 
Uh, I mentioned already, I use August, the beginning of January or at the end of December and May to reset my family, but it starts with a rest day where I just go and I have a day to myself where I plan, I reflect. And so that is a rest day um, that is seasonally and then yearly, having yearly rest, having a yearly vacation. Uh, this is so important to just honor rest and build it into our schedule. And once it's built in, we protect it just like we do any other important appointment. We need time to rest. Those are my four tips. Number one, stifling the urge for every extracurricular option out there. Number two, consider the season you're in. If you're going through a major life transition, that is the curriculum. Number three, allowing open-ended free play boredom. And number four, making time for rest. That is how we get through the third learning environment of time. As we embrace the concepts of interests, meaning, and real-life applications, we will find that these elements intersect beautifully with the principles of natural learning and family life. Our children feel more engaged, motivated, and fulfilled in their homeschooling experience. So say yes. That's my mindset moment for this episode. When we think about shifting our mindsets, I want us to shift from no to yes. When you are asked, pause and ask yourself, what would it take to say yes to your child? Saying yes is a mindset of relationship currency, and it drops a hefty deposit into your child's emotional bank account. When we are told yes, we feel loved, we feel seen and heard. I've written a blog post about this if you'd like more information, and it's linked in the show notes. Do try to say yes to your child. It is a mindset shift that wins. Do you enjoy listening to other homeschoolers share their stories and ask their questions? If you're like me, this is how you find new resources and perhaps experience new revelations. It is my deepest desire to share your story and your arrival to homeschooling, the struggles you've experienced, and also why you're still homeschooling. I'd love to elevate your family's unique learning journey for all of us to hear and learn from. I truly believe we have more in common than we have differences, and sharing our individual struggles and strengths is a way we can grow in empathy and understanding of one another perhaps even inspiring a new avenue of learning to embark on in our own learning lives. So let us hear from you. Click the link in the show notes and leave me a voicemail and be part of a future episode. So to close us out today, I would like you to meet my friend Ashley and listen as she shares a bit about her unschooling story, how learning intersects with relationship, time, and space and what that looks like in her home. Hi, my name is Ashley, unschooling mom to an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. During the pandemic, like many families, we had the opportunity to start homeschooling, and because we've always put our relationships with our children first, we quickly discovered unschooling, and we haven't looked back. Unschooling has allowed our family to reclaim so much. We've been able to reclaim childhood for our own children. They are growing and learning every day in nature in connection with us as their parents, spending time with people of all ages and on things that are of interest to them. Unschooling has allowed our family to reclaim our freedom. 
We're free to spend our days at home, reading, creating, discussing, resting, playing, all the things we know to be valuable to all people. Unschooling has allowed us to reclaim our natural curiosity and love of learning. Our children are experiencing learning as living, not something that happens only within a classroom. I share some of my thoughts and our unschooling days on Instagram at Ashley as Mama. If you would like to share your story, ask your question, or cite a resource or tip that has helped you in your homeschool, please click the link in the show notes and send a quick voice message. I would love to elevate your voice in this space. That's all for today's episode of the 90 Minute School Day. Thank you for joining us as we explored the essential elements of relationship, space, and time in promoting a rich learning environment. Remember, as homeschooling parents, we have the unique opportunity to shape a learning environment that celebrates our children's passions and individuality. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your fellow homeschooling families. We'll be back with more valuable insights and strategies for your homeschooling journey soon. Until next time, keep inspiring curiosity, fostering connections, and cultivating a love of learning in your homeschooling environment. Happy homeschooling.